Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Uh, we are just Mel and I today, mm-hmm. Mel and Bridger. If you yeah. don't know, I uh, <laughs> I am Bridger. Um, we are in the studio today to record a very special, fun episode. episode we yes. just finished our Ego State uh, mini series. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have not so many, it could well, yeah, turn into a, a big series. That's true. Uh-huh. Six. Six episodes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So if you haven't listened to that, um, definitely go back and do that. It's going to make sense of a lot of where these questions are coming from. Um, But today we're going to just jump in. We've had some listeners uh, just lovingly and uh, curiously send in questions. Great questions. Oh, my gosh. Yes, such good questions. We're going to get into the Enneagram, Uh which Mel and I both love. So Uh this is going to be great. Thank you for pitching that to us. Yep, just softballs everywhere. Softball, softball, softball. But speaking of listeners sending in questions, uh, Patreon. Yeah. I want to talk about Patreon. Yeah. So one of the fun things that happens when you're a Patreon member is that you get uh, basically preferred question asking. Yep. That's right. Um, so when we're selecting what questions to answer and in what order and things like that, if you're a Patreon member, um, your questions get bumped to the top of the list and we make sure and cover them because uh, we you know, want to interact with our supportive community and um, Patreon is the best way to do that. That's right. So if you're interested in looking into that, you can go to patreon.com slash beyond healing center. Mm-hmm. And we have multiple tiers of memberships so that you can, uh, pick the tier that's, you know, right for what your needs are right for your budget. Um, that we have lots and lots of different resources available there, including, you know, full recorded, uh, sessions yes. where you can hear us live with yes. a client going through cool. the process, um, which is always, you know, so supportive to us as therapists to kind of be a fly in the wall in those sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of other things. We have monthly consultation calls where if you're a top tier member, what we call a VVIP, <laughs> very, very yeah, important you get patient. to get on those calls for free with us and um, hang out with us for an hour and ask all of your EMDR related questions. And sometimes we get into other fun topics <laughs> Yes, um, that are relevant to our practice. So yeah, so we're going to start with um, a question from Emily Medina. Yes. Bridger, you want to read her question? Sure. I said, hi, I have a client with complex PTSD. And we are just beginning EMDR processing. When we try to do calm, safe place, the client starts to feel very tired and heavy, and her emotions seem to be keeping her from creating a calm place. It seems like just imagining a space to relax is overwhelming for her. Any hints on how to handle this? So many. Oh, yes. Yes, we do. All of the... All of the hints. Yeah. So the very first thing that, you know, popped in my head when I read this was, have you screened her for dissociation? You've got a dissociator. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah pretty much. Um and where, you know, you mentioned that uh, she has that diagnosis of complex PT- PTSD that makes it all the yeah. more likely. Where there's smoke, there's yes, fire. Yes, exactly. And um, that fire that is, you know, fueling this experience for her is that there is usually a part um, of the personality that is very, very activated and distressed by the idea of relaxation. It's not so much that the idea of feeling safe isn't okay, yeah. but it's that their nervous system has really come to the conclusion that safety is not a possibility. Yeah. And so feeling safe, i.e. experiencing a sense of relaxation and calm in my body actually produces a threat response. Yes. Because, oh, no, no, wait, safety is not a real thing. No, and it can't be 
my body can't feel safe because that right. means I don't have the energy that I need. Yeah. Well, and what if something takes me off guard? Exactly. Right? I won't when, be prepared. When the threat appears, I'm not going to be in that state of readiness. Yeah. Um, and that is a indication that hypervigilance as a strategy of her nervous system is interfering with her ability to enter into the calm, safe experience. Yes. So we got options in this scenario. Number one, we learn a whole lot in a short amount of time when somebody struggles with calm, safe place because it tells us, number one, dissociation is going to be something that we're going to be doing battle with the whole way through, Yeah. which means we're going to be creative in our resourcing process and extend our resourcing process. Yes. And the important extensions and creativity that we're going to move into is helping them find ways of feeling neutral without having to move into relaxation. Yeah. So when I'm describing this to a client, this is the analogy that I use. There's multiple levels of activation that happen in the human body. And ones that we all experience on a regular basis is think of the level of activation that it takes to run. Mm. It's a lot of activation, right? That is a good example of hypervigilance in the system, mm -hmm. right? Energy is pumping, we're uh, on the move, or we're ready to be on the move, right? Mm -hmm. Where our muscles are tense, our breathing is heavy, et cetera. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have a state of relaxation best represented as sleep <laughs> or lying down, getting ready to go to sleep. Yes. The, the um, process of letting our body fade into relaxed repose. And in that state, our muscles are relaxed, nothing is contracted, um, and we feel safe enough to disconnect from keeping track of what's happening in the environment all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, that is the state of uh, relaxation and lack of activation that can be really, really distressing to somebody that has complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to teach them at the beginning, rather than f just fighting and continuing to push this idea that they need to be able to relax that much, because that's not going to work, we want to teach them the in-between skill. Mm. So what I describe is, think about the level of activation that it takes to sit cross-legged on the floor with your back against the wall. I'm relaxed, but my muscles are still somewhat activated, mm. right? My core muscles are on, but not tense. Yeah. My leg muscles are on, but not tense, right? My neck, my head, etc. And then when we think about that level of activation, we can find in there a space of neutrality and feeling supported and uh, at ease and at rest, but also still engaged enough that if something were to happen in my environment that I could still respond. Yeah. So for somebody that struggles with relaxation, this is a really helpful analogy to kind of help them find that in-between space. And as a resource, number one, you can actually have them do that. Yeah. Sit in a comfortable position, notice the activation that is not tension, right? I am calm, but also alert. And just the feeling of that in their body can be installed as a neutrality resource. Mm -hmm. So if we can't get to a calm, safe resource, what we can install instead is a neutrality resource. And that's one example. Another example of a neutrality resource is think of a blank room with blank walls and nothing in it. It is just a place. Mm. I'm not meant to feel any particular way when I am in this place. This is a place of an absence of feeling rather than a presence of a certain feeling. Some clients really connect with that. If they uh, don't connect with that, another option is to find a specific spot in their body that feels neutral, 
tip of the so, finger. Yes, tip of the finger. One of my personal favorites because it makes people giggle. Yeah, tip of the finger. <laughs> tip of what the finger. Yeah, or uh, your left pinky toe. That's right. How does that feel right now? Uh, doesn't feel like much. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> That's what we're You're going for. It. Yeah. Um, or your right earlobe. Yeah. What does that feel like? N- nothing. It doesn't it? feel like any. Yeah. yeah. Do I have any sensation there? Yes. That's the yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Your earlobe is not numb. It's just not, uh, you know, full of tension mm. and trying to do anything right now. And so, uh, having them focus on a specific spot in their body, whether it be a kneecap or an elbow, it doesn't matter. You can let them choose, but having them just focus on the absence of tension, the mm-hmm. absence of sensation in that spot because remember the reason why we start with calm safe place at the beginning of uh, our process in emdr is so that we have an anchor spot to go to if they start to move out of their window of tolerance so they don't have to have a calm safe place for us to start but what we do have to have is a reset button a place to take them or a you know a way of moving them into neutrality so that we can bring Mm -hmm. them out of the top or the bottom of their window for me when i start working with complex ptsd there's I do a lot of assessment in where they're coming in um, with their activation and how their body has coped with what has happened to them. Um, We don't know from just this small snippet. um, It sounds like somebody who's more dorsal Mm -hmm. than sympathetic, but some people um, respond very sympathetically to their uh, to their trauma mm-hmm. and that means if this were true for that person if they were trying you know starting to dissociate when a calm safe place imagery was being used um, that's taking away their power right. uh, for the dorsal presentation that's pushing them farther down the ladder into mm-hmm. uh, just this dungeness kind of place so really trying to understand what their nervous system is showing you um, as you start to choose the resource to go. Um, for me with some complex PTSD, especially if they are the dorsal type, I usually don't go for calm, safe place first. Um, I will go with a power resource mm-hmm. of some kind, something mm-hmm. to help them feel um, secure within themselves, that no right. matter what they're going to go through, they can handle it and see if they can they can be with me in that place. Mm-hmm. The calm, safe place is probably a joke to them. Right. It feels manipulative. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, like you're asking them to move into a vulnerable space before they're actually ready. Exactly. For it. Mm-hmm. So let's give them some armor mm-hmm. before they are pushed to that or even invited to that space. So I get really creative with the resourcing depending on where my assessment leads me. Um, if there is, you know, a need for that um, sort of uh, supportive or powerful kind of figure, that's the route that I'll go yeah. um, before I jump into any type of calm, safe place. Mm-hmm. That's just not my first resource that I go to. Yeah. Yeah. And remember to, um, you know, somebody really, really struggles with this, we can externalize it for them at the yes. beginning. And uh, an example of that would be having uh, an essential oil that connects mm. them with a the feeling of yeah. present awareness and calm. And, uh, you know, they bring that with them to session or I keep it in my office yeah. to utilize during session, a candle that smells good, a lotion that they put on their hands and there's the sensory awareness plus the smell of it. Um, remember, it doesn't actually matter which resource we use at the beginning as long as it is going to achieve that goal of helping them stay within their window of tolerance as we move forward in the process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So excellent first question. For the yeah. sake of time, we have to keep going. Oh, okay. Yes, we do. Um, these... Next one is from Claire Hoffman. Yes. And she says, I've got a few, yes. which I like. I love these questions. 
Um, so do you, Mel, do you want to take them sure. like piece by piece? Yeah. Or, okay. So yeah, go with the first question. Okay. Them. So this is getting, we kind of organized them a little bit into specific ego state questions. The first one we chose, um, just cause it's just basic dissociation, yeah. which is neurobiologically at the foundation of what ego state is. Yes. So now we're going to jump kind of into a little bit more specific ego state or parts language. Um, so the first question from Claire is, do you speak directly to parts or do you have the apparently normal part speak to them? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know in the notice that if we went into directly with ANP and EP. Right. So if you guys aren't familiar with that language, ANP stands for apparently normal part. That is the aspect of personality that, um, you know, walks around in daily life. They're usually mm-hmm. the one that goes to work, comes to session, handles bills and parenting and things yeah. like that. Um, that is the apparently normal part. That's who yeah. that person would identify as myself. This is me. Yeah. This is myself. Yeah. And it's usually, um, you know, if we're working with an adult that's going to present as an adult, right? Yes. Um, and then we have EPs, which are emotional parts. And these are the parts that tend to be dissociated out of either awareness or um, integration with the rest of the personality. Yes. And there's a lot of difference in how many EPs somebody can have, the severity of the dissociation, how much consciousness they have. There's a wide spectrum of that that we're, we've gotten into on other episodes, so I'm not going to do that here, yes. even though it's fascinating. little shout-out, though, to The Evidence-Based Therapist, uh, yeah. which is a new podcast that we have. We'll be releasing this month sometime, Be releasing sometime, this hopefully. month. Yeah. Fingers crossed. We've yeah. had some technical difficulties, but <laughs> we it's coming do. out, and we did a two-part episode diving deep into an article that goes into structural dissociation yes, and yeah. ANPs, EPs, and then how to work with them in trauma treatment. Yeah, so an jump on article. over there. And once that's uh, posted, we can put the links and the mm-hmm. show notes in this episode so that you guys can find that easily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So do you speak directly to parts or do you have the ANP speak to them? So I've got an easy answer and then a really big answer. Yeah. The answer is both. Yes. Yeah. So the more complicated answer is it depends on the structural needs of the system as it currently is. Yes. The the goal down the road eventually is that the ANP is a loving, self-compassionate parent to all EPs, right? And that means that we want the ANP to be the primary interactor with those EPs. Sorry, I lost you. Did you say the first part? Can you say the first part again? Yeah. So eventually we want want the apparently normal part of the personality, the adult aspect of the personality, to feel like a loving and self-compassionate parent to the rest of the personality. In the beginning, that is not the case. Exactly. And that's why the answer is more complicated is because some people, when they show up and we're using ego state work, their apparently normal personality is uh, very, very ready to step into that role. Mm -hmm. Ready, willing, capable. Maybe they, you know, had... even. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they, you know, had some good parenting experiences. Maybe they are a parent and they have some transferable skills, etc. But a lot of people with complex PTSD in particular, they have that diagnosis because there was significant attachment rupturing. There was significant lack of nurture and care when they were young, which means their templating for offering themselves um, those needs are pretty limited. So when we encourage them to speak to those other parts of themselves in a loving manner, they don't know how to do that. And if we push them to do that too soon, sometimes the apparently normal personality will kind of do more harm than good in there (laughs) because there's a reason why this structure has been set up the way that it is and often the apparently normal part does not want 
yes. to interact with the EPs. That's why it's dissociated. Yes. And so, you know, finding that true sense of self-compassion towards those emotional parts and saying, you know, I love you, I accept you, you're fully welcome here, and I want to be with you in the intensity of what you're feeling, that feels really far away for our clients. Yes. They feel ashamed, they feel very frustrated, they feel all kinds of negative emotions towards those parts of themselves, and uh, you know, shame being the biggest one. So healing the ANP's feelings and relationship with the EPs has to happen before we can ask them to step into that role and start speaking directly to the EPs. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to model it for them. Yes. Which means we're going to do the talking at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I very, very rarely have the ANP speak first without me having a, a template set and an example given of this is what it means to interact respectfully and compassionately towards those emotional parts. Not saying that we don't have boundaries with them. Yeah. Yeah. In the, the second episode of the part two, like the two part series that we um, did on that article, we talked very much about how the A&P feels about EPs yeah. and how the EPs feel about A&Ps and really honoring the system in that way yeah. of paying attention to is the A&P open to meeting this part? Mm -hmm. Do they even know it's there? Yeah. What is their reaction when we identify it? Yeah. Is it dissociated to the point of aggression? Mm -hmm. um, that is where we need to kind of be paying attention. Right. What's their relationship like? If you're dealing with somebody that has some some healing under their belt, so to speak, and they discover a new EP, they might be able to step into that role pretty soon, um, even if it's very, very activating. Yeah. But by and large, I want to fill that space first. If, if you guys listen to the episode where I tell my own story of uh, ego state work and my introduction to it, that part Eve is a dissociated emotional part. Yeah. And she was very, very shamed by my apparently normal personality. And that was reflected in the way that she showed up internally for me. And what I describe in that episode is the conversations that occurred internally for me back and forth between the apparently normal part and that particular EP. Yeah. And uh, that was really, really stressful and emotional. But the reason I was able to do it is because I had had a whole class at that point on ego state work. <laughs> <laughs> and even though there wasn't a therapist there with me to do that templating for me and tell me what to say, I had been given a lot of instruction and was able to do that effectively, mm -hmm. but it was still really, really hard. Yeah. And so if we can be in that space with our client, the goal is that we slowly begin to pass the baton to them yes. in the same way that you would with an actual child. Yep. You give them responsibility as it's developmentally appropriate. appropriate. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. Take of time. Okay. Second one. What does speaking to parts look like in a non-DID client and do you do it? Yes. If yes, is there a way to do it? <laughs> or sorry, is there a way to do this without feeling super woo-woo and awkward? Okay. I love Woo Woo. <clears throat> I know, that's so great. So I get this question All a lot. The and the truth is, uh, full disclosure, I'm not one that experiences nerves around the woo-woo and the awkward because it's just who I am. Just love it. <laughs> I walk around the world making people feel awkward with the woo-woo that I am open to. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how I roll. Yes. And my clients figure that out real fast. Yeah, they come to you for the woo-woo. Yeah, they really do, actually. Yeah. Um, however, this is a legit question because, you know, I have the luxury of being that full authentic version of myself kind of yeah. right out of the gate. So it doesn't feel like some awkward transition to Can we talk to about them. what you perceive the definition of woo-woo. Yeah. Because I think it's relevant to this question. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it feels like 
they're not going to take me seriously. Right. Like it's not science. This, yes. Like this is too out there. Uh-huh. Like we're about ready to talk about alien conspiracy theory. Yes. Which I'll talk about that too. Yes. But <laughs> just kidding. Not really. Well, not really. Anyway, but not on this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have another podcast called Mind of the Therapist. <laughs> <So> we might. <laughs> Yeah, so so the the issue with the idea of something being too woo-woo usually comes up when a therapist is concerned about maintaining their presence of professionalism. Credibility. And yeah. credibility while still being therapeutic and nurturing. And we find ourselves in that weird space of like trying to wear the professional hat and the, the ooey-gooey warm fuzzy hat all at the same time. And yeah. this is a strange space to be in. Mm. So... For me, the reason, one of the reasons why I think this was never a big challenge was because I was just sort of thrown into the deep end of the ego state woo-woo by going to that conference. And the power of it became so apparent so quickly that I got over any trepidation that I had. Because you saw the power. Because I saw the power of it. And the other thing that really, really helps is that when I introduce ego state to clients, I introduce it with science first. Yes, and explain to them that ego state work is simply an anthropomorphizing of their nervous system. That's right. And it is helpful to use relational language. from the beginning. From the very beginning, because in relationship, we understand that there is a dynamic, a give and take. Yeah, and I have uh, multiple feelings about one thing, and sometimes there's conflicting feelings, and how does that work? And giving relational language to that lets us work with something and put handles on something that is normally pretty intangible. Mm -hmm. So I start with that explanation with clients. And then I say, but just so you know, sometimes at the beginning, this feels really weird. Yeah. It feels weird because we're talking to a part of you that is you, but isn't you. Yeah. And you feel it, but it's not you. Yes. And what does that mean? And so what I say to them is the best way to kind of get familiar with this is to sort of let go of I have to fully understand it and just experience it and see what the experience is like. Um, And I just kind of preface for them, this is going to feel really strange to you, um, but I want you to have a dual awareness of the awkwardness that you're feeling, Mm -hmm. but then also the other feelings behind the awkwardness and how much you actually really like it. (laughs) This is creative and I like it. Yeah. So, so I have an example of this that I think is great. Um, I often have flowers in my office and there was one particular session where at the end of the session, we had just introduced the idea of ego state work. Mm. And as a um, kind of conclusion to that experience, I felt the compulsion to give one of the flowers to the child part that we had been talking about Mm. in order to make it more tangible and really demonstrate that when I say I intend to come into relationship with this part of you, that I really mean it, right? And and, Yeah, and making it concrete. And so, um, you know, part of this question is how do you talk to them? So this is how I set that up and moved into that space. What I said to her was, this may feel odd, and if it feels like too much, it's really okay. You can just let me know that that feels like too much for today. But what I would like to do is stand up and go pick one of those roses out of that vase and give it to that four-year-old part of you. Yeah. Because I bet that she would really like it. Mm. And that was the preface. And we paused, and she felt 
all of her reactions to that. Mm. <laughs> and her the initial thing out of her mouth was, well, those are your flowers. And I said, I know. And I want to give her one. Mm. Right? And so, obviously, like, there's all kinds of feelings. of feelings. Yeah. And so, in that moment, I articulated exactly what I was seeing and saying that that you know range of emotions that you're experiencing is what this work is all about is being able to feel the different reactions that you have to one experience yeah and this is just an example of how that could work yeah and uh so she consented and said yeah i think i'm willing to try that and so i did exactly what i said i was going to do i got up i picked a rose and i handed it to her i sat back down and i said would it feel comfortable for you if i looked at you right now but spoke to the four-year-old part of you Mm -hmm. and she consented and what i said was i'm so glad that we are beginning a relationship and i can't wait to get to know you more yeah that was it yeah and of course there were lots of tears yes (laughs) so well up of reaction in your mind what makes that stay out of the category of like why are you being so weird right now uh because of the context and yeah. the consent. Yes. So one of the things now, you know, this is no surprise to anybody. I am a big part of the metaphysical com- community. Like I'm, I'm into the weird, right? Yes. But here's my beef with that community is that sometimes we use spiritual concepts as an override to people's autonomy. And that is exactly the opposite of what is therapeutic in traumatic Can situations. Can kind of come off gaslighty a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Like, well, this is a spiritual thing or this is an energetic yeah. thing. And so you just should be yeah, open to just it. trust it. Embrace right? it. Um, so I don't do that. I don't like it when people do that to me. And I'm not going to do it to my clients. And I also really, really believe that the best uh, metaphysical work and energetic work is grounded in science. Yes. We cannot give it a full explanation. But there's enough out there that if we are doing our due diligence and actually researching what we're doing before we do it, the science is out there. And so I can give that to my clients as an explanation and then tell them, and now we have to make the science tangible. Yes. And that is what this modality is about. Yes. To me, the if even some of that language, um, if you can't imagine yourself speaking that way to a client or to mm-hmm. a part and, and doing that, that's okay. I don't want you yeah. to out I don't want you to rule it out. Yeah. To me, I start the even just in the beginning stages of meeting the client um, as, you know, there's an entire world mm-hmm. occurring inside you. Mm-hmm. You know, your mind and ideas and your thoughts and feelings are swirling around and you've had a really hard time making sense of all of what's going on in there. Right. We need to develop a language yeah. to be able, like a bridge, to mm-hmm. be able to get in there and to start mm-hmm. making sense of it. I know one of the languages we could use if it feels okay to you. Yeah. And we start with parts. Mm-hmm. And so that is how the the kind of we're just building a dictionary together basically mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. who's there and, and what they're feeling and mm-hmm. how they're feeling and it just helps them really understand that it's okay to have more than one feeling at a right. time right and that they can interact including the weird and the awkward that's right yeah especially the weird and yes the awkward. and and so you know using that as almost the first kind of bridge into that space of like this feels weird but it also feels like something else and i'll say things like does it feel weird and nice or right. weird, weird and bad right um Nine times out of ten, it's weird and nice. Yes. Like, weird, but please don't stop. Right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And if it's that, then we just keep on going. Because 
one of the things that we're modeling for clients by doing this, even when it feels weird and awkward, is helping them get more comfortable with their own affect. Mm -hmm. And the fact that emotions can be big and challenging and confusing, and we can feel all kinds of things and not be afraid of it. Yes. We can do this together. Yes. So Claire, to answer your question, uh, yes, you use it with clients without non or with, uh, non DID clients Mm -hmm. and, uh, the feeling woo woo and weird about it that I think is self-exploration, just seeing if there are ways that you can kind of explore it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just Mm -hmm. as much as you believe in it, they can too. So the next question from Claire, uh, when used as a prep for EMDR, what indications do you look for that signal the client has done enough ego state stuff to move into reprocessing? And she, and she notes presumably dissociative CPTSD. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, I have a few clients right now that are, um, uh, come from ritualistic abuse Mm -hmm. and of the sexual variety. And so that, uh, has led them to a severe fragmentation internally Mm -hmm. where they have uh, multiple parts that have um, varying degrees of um, self-harm compulsions as well as um, just massive dissociative fugues that they'll go into. So with that, um, I'm mainly creating a space for all of us to uh, meet internally. So kind of like an internal uh, like foyer in the house that all the parts, whoever would like to come forward can, and we're just going to kind of be around each other Mm. and just to hang out. Um, and as I build on that analogy, they're coming from a hallway, uh, in which their experiences live. All of the things that have happened to them live in these rooms in the hallway that they're emerging from into the foyer. So for me, whenever like the threshold of when we're ready to start doing the reprocessing, I know that that's because they bring one with them to the meeting place. They bring an experience If you know, there could just yes. be an invitation sent out to the parts to say, if anybody would like to come to the foyer today with something, yeah. I would be very open to that. Practically, that can look like um, memories emerging spontaneously. Exactly. And it's almost, you know, the the imagination equivalent of it's like these parts are raising their hand and going, can it be my turn now? Yes. <laughs> and we definitely get that more when we actually move into reprocessing and those parts are observing other parts go through the process. It's like it increases their desire to have their own turn. Um, but the, the way that I often set it up, which is really similar, is uh, simply asking. Yes. Where feels like the safest place or the best place to start? Is there a part that feels like they feel safe enough to to volunteer for that yes and then selecting targets that um are good practice targets in the sense of do all parts feel comfortable observing yes this work yes um when we're picking a a practice target at the beginning where we're kind of in that in-between zone of i think we're ready but i want to just toe dip and see right choosing a target and then inviting all parts to observe the work so that they understand what we're about to do is really, really helpful. Yes. And if that goes well, then we proceed. And every time we're coming into reprocessing, we're asking, Hey, who feels up for it today? And it will vary. Um, and, or there's, you know, groups of parts that will all kind of share one memory and kind of come together to work on this. And all of that is normal. Absolutely. Um, again, sorry, Claire, sake of time. Last question. What part do we want front and center when reprocessing a target? The EP related to that event or the ANP? The answer is both. Again, it's yes and. Yeah, yeah. If they if they are in good relationship with each other, 
then we always want the ANP present because that is going to become that compassionate self-parent as, as quickly as possible. And that, that idea of uh, parts observing each other is great for two things, integration and building uh, compassion and understanding within Absolutely. the system. Yes. So uh, the actual answer to this question is you want as many parts present just, as can tolerate. I was just going to say all of them, yes. if any of them. Yes. Like it just, yeah. Yeah. Anybody that wants to be here to observe, yes. that is going to, and to allow, be with. yeah, yeah. Yes. Allow that integrative uh, quality to happen even more. Um, and I would not do hardly any processing if the ANP is totally out. No. Because then you're it just, can't be integrated. Yeah, then you're yeah. just in the world of the EP. And exactly. that's where I think really understanding and shifting to a posture of trying to understand what dissociation even is. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that the EP is holding the memory means it was intolerable to the A&P. Right. So the very nature of them holding it means it's disintegrated. Right. So we need to bring integration into the system. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean the EP is going to evaporate after no. the memory right. is reprocessed. And that's and, not even the point. No, not no. even the point. It's about relationship. Exactly. Yeah. It's always about relationship mm-hmm. and inner connection being safe seen soothed inside the system itself yes Mm -hmm. yeah all right thank you claire for all the wonderful questions such good questions Uh, we could go on and on and on and on but we've got a few more so from kim dalton Mm -hmm. um, i'm just going to read this in full because there's a couple questions but i think it's important mainly in the larger context of the whole question or the whole kind of comment what is your go-to interventions used when talking about parts with clients with EMDR, do parts integrate or do they stay parts but we're together? I'm experiencing many of my clients seem to have protective parts that keep them from allowing positive or moments of connection in. A few clients seem to have distractive parts that keep them from certain memories. I feel like I'm just learning about this, so I'm not fully wrapping my mind around the goal or where it lands. Parts can keep someone from processing trauma and have kept them safe during the trauma. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kim, for your vulnerability. This yeah. is beautiful processing. Yes. Um, and I'm confident we can come to some really awesome insight yeah. here yeah so stepping back with a big picture answer and then we'll kind of fill it in the goal of doing ego state work is the same goal that we have with emdr which is we are integrating the disintegrated whatever experiences parts of self um, emotions beliefs etc that are uh experienced as not allowed in some way or unacceptable or shameful or too much too overwhelming too scary any of those things that are being shoved outside of my full integrated self those are what we are going after and we want them to be fully integrated so um a practical example of this as strange as it may seem, you know, our big trauma moments of our life, like the worst possible moments, the healthiest thing that can happen is that those experiences are fully alive in our body at all times in a tolerable form, rather than disintegrated from ourself in a intolerable form. Yes. And ego state work is a huge part of how we do that because it helps us work with the things that are outside of specific memories in a uh, conscious sense, Yes. right? Um, so the goal is the same. The big overwhelming goal that we're you know, going after is not to integrate the emotional parts in the sense that they disappear, but to integrate them in the sense that they are fully welcomed, accepted, loved and understood as best as we can yes. and that they have a voice 
in the lived experience in my life. Yes. Okay. So every part of me gets to raise their hand at any point and say, excuse me, I have a need. Yes. All right. And the rest of the system is going to turn in unison and say, we're listening. Yeah. With attentive yes. attunement. Yes. Yeah. Can, can we meet this need that we're experiencing? Um, and when we understand ego state in that way, that it's all the aspects of what it means to be human, yeah. right? Presenting themselves in a, um, you know, in a unique form and it's all about communication with myself, mm-hmm. right? And so that's what we're trying to do as a, an overarching goal with ego state work. So yes, they may integrate, um, they will definitely hopefully work together, but the real goal is that they are loved, accepted, wanted, known in the same way that we yeah. would with a full human. Yeah. And I think the to speak to the distractionary kind of strategies on mm-hmm. some of the parts, you know, that is similar to what we were talking about Claire's questions. The 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 reason the EP exists, the dissociated part, is because the experience was intolerable to the system. Right. That means that the system was so overwhelmed by something that it felt like it was um, confronted with its vulnerability uh, that made it susceptible to annihilation, Mm -hmm. like it was going to die. Mm -hmm. So it instead cut itself off and buried itself somewhere. Uh, The A&P then uh, intentionally removed memory of that part. So it just says, I don't have that part anymore. I don't have those experiences. So when we start to interact with something that the person feels is there, but their A and P says, no, it's not. Now we're going to have this distraction game going back and forth of, mm-hmm. well, is it there? Is it not? Oh, yeah. Think about this thing instead, because the system believes it's not there, right. whatever happened to it. Mm-hmm. So it is so intent. It's so important to validate that and to say how intolerable that experience was if it was there at all. You know, you don't have to go into convincing them it was there or no. not or mm-hmm. that we have to talk about it. Just let the parts share their feelings regarding how we're going about, um, you know, kind of uh, like stepping towards this experience or or moving in on this experience. Um, They will try to distract because that's their strategy. Absolutely. They're trying to keep the system alive. Mm -hmm. And they believe that regardless of who you are or how safe you think you are or whatever, if we go there, that was an experience that we couldn't handle. That's why we buried it in the first place. Right. So right. to go there again, I don't know what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm not going to let us go there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the last sentence there, parts can keep someone from processing trauma and have kept them safe during the trauma. Yes, both are completely true. Yes. And both are the same thing. Yep. Um, the lack of processing of the trauma is because their system has determined it is unsafe We're to not be even in full touch awareness. It. Yeah, to be in full awareness of what that trauma was. So whatever is blocking and this this is beyond ego state, you guys. Whatever is blocking processing is always a strategy of survival for the nervous system. Yes. One hundred percent of the time. Yes. Kim, you should take our SIP one training. I don't know. <laughs> She's heard that a few times. Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> we talk. <laughs> good. I'm glad. Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so let's Kim keep going. Right. So Jean, Jeannie, I'm not sure how you say your name, uh, but Jean Farnsworth sent us this question. I'd love to hear you talk about how you connect ego state work to energy modalities. If you do AIP as well. Do you have a sense for how many parts might exist within, within one person? Lastly, how about a client unable to buy in 
to self as resource? Okay, so we're going to do kind of the first part of that question and then the second. So when it comes to energy modalities, the answer is absolutely yes. 100%. Um, I can't, you know, I'm uh, trained in Reiki and craniosacral and do a lot of that work. And it's kind of a running joke amongst all of us that I can't put my hands on somebody without talking about ego state. It's going to happen. Because <laughs> it's just real natural. It's going to happen. Um, it is a beautiful pairing. There's actually uh, certain energy modalities that utilize ego state almost exclusively as a means of communicating with the energetic system. Because remember, ego state is anthropomorphizing the nervous system. Energy yep. modalities are working directly with the electricity of the nervous system. Energy modalities are not weird woo-woo. Um, that's, you know, the communities that they started in. But it is the science of understanding how to utilize our electricity to interact with the electricity of another nervous system. And ego state simply gives language to that process. How yes. is that for succinct? Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> so AIP as well, um, yeah. adaptive information processing. Uh, the backbone of EMDR saying yes. past shapes, present, and future, and then that's neurobiologically relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can sense how fast we're going, it's because we need we're to get done. But um, <laughs> so the answer to that question is yes, um, ego state, and that's another shout out to the evidence-based therapist, the other podcast that we have when it mm-hmm. launches, listen to uh, all of the dissociative um, episodes that we did. Um, in that in, or in those episodes, we talk about the neurobiological underpinnings of ego state work, mm-hmm. which means structural dissociation. Right. Um, and that's Kathy Steele and on, on Ono Vanderhart. Um, they go into um, the uh, what it means for the brain to be structurally dissociated, yeah. and they go into primary, secondary, tertiary dissociation. And so you should go listen to that yes. as soon as possible, yes. whenever it drops. And and this question may be about: Do we also utilize AIP in those energy modalities? The answer is also yes to that. Um, and the way that we do that is talking about how the nervous system is memory. Yeah, um, that's another EBT episode. I think we're going to be doing that a lot here. <laughs> um, and uh, Bruce Perry, there's a beautiful article that he wrote Memories called Memories of Fear. Of Fear oh. And uh, he really does a good job of explaining that the entirety of our nervous system is memory. Yes. Like that is what our body is. It is memory. And so when we're doing energetic work and we're interacting with the nervous system, we are always interacting with memory. And so it becomes really relevant yeah. uh, to utilize AIP to understand what we're interacting with and then also help the client or whomever we're working on to understand that as things come up and arise in their nervous system, it is simply the trapped energy slash electricity, if you want to use the more scientific language, that has been um, stuck in the nervous system, creating anxiety, creating all kinds of symptoms. And through energetic or electrical interaction with another nervous system, we can provide an environment where that can be released from the nervous system. And uh, so, yes, we use AAP and energy modalities. Do you have a sense of how many parts might exist within one person? I don't mean to be snarky in this response, but truly it's as many as need to be. Um, parts happen, uh, shout out again to Bruce Perry. All right. (laughs) I guess we're doing it. So memories of fear, um, parts emerge from the intolerable experience of traumatic uh, situations. So however many parts are there is Mm -hmm. how many need to be from the system's perspective. So it's not about, and we, we at Beyond Healing Center are very appreciative of more formalized, uh, something like IFS, Mm -hmm. but we don't practice that way where there's this certain role that this many parts are going to right, play right we just let the the person the client uh come with the parts that they have and mm-hmm. we're always open to the discovery of new parts and to be honest you guys i've been practicing ego state for years at this point both with my clients and with me personally 
And at this point, when I reference my own internal landscape, there's a whole bunch of me's in there. Yep. And I'm fine with that because yeah. once again, it's not about integration. Is it's it about, useful? Yeah. It's about, you know, how am I having a relationship with myself? And if this is simply about anthropomorphizing my own nervous system, um, then if it is useful to me to anthropomorphize an aspect of my lived experience, then I'm going to do that Absolutely. so that I can come into, Interact with it. yeah, and come into relationship with it, mm-hmm. um, and understand those interactions in yes. that way. And so there, there is not a goal of having less. There's not a goal of having more. There is a goal of having relationship, communication, and an authentic expression of the fullness of my personality. Yes. And human beings are very complex and we're all very, very different. Now, to give a super practical answer, on a normal basis, when you do Fraser's family table with a client that does not have DID, they're gonna show up initially with somewhere between three and 10 parts, okay? If you're doing something or doing this with somebody that does have DID, they're going to show up uh, with probably more like five to 12, okay? It's not as many as you would think right out the gate, Um, but the difference is more about how dissociated they are from each other. How easy that communication and that interaction is, is what the big difference is. Um, I have worked with people that have, you know, closer to 50, yeah. I've done some incredibly deep work with people that only really identify two or three parts. That's right. Doesn't matter. The work is de- just as rich and deep. Yes. Uh, one of the takeaways from this whole episode is just wanting to shift the posture away from certainty of parts and what to do with them mm-hmm. and more so openness to uh, increasing connectivity between right. the system. Exactly. It doesn't matter how many parts are there. Our posture stays the same. It's curious, it's attuned, it's seeking safety, it's making meaning, it's, it's, it's about there to be in relationship. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. Um, so, yes, there's going to be a lot of parts or very few, just mm-hmm. as many as the person needs. Yeah. Lastly, how about a client unable to buy into self as a resource? That's totally okay. Once again, this kind of goes back to that first question of do you talk or does the A&P talk? Right. Um, you do it until they can do it. Or in the case of resourcing, let it be someone else until it can be them. Yes. If they don't connect with it, never get into a power struggle with a client about a a resource. It's just not worth it. It's going to produce more harm than good. So if they're not connecting with it, move right along. Find something else that they will connect with. um, And you can always come back and install that when their system is ready to receive it. That's right. Just set it down for a second. It doesn't, you don't have to die on that hill. It's going to be fine. Yeah. All right. Last question. Which is a big one. Yeah. So Kelly uh, Ontiveros asks, looking forward to the, well, she says, looking forward <laughs> to this conversation. Thanks, Kelly. Us too. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> um, I would love to know your thoughts on the overlap and integration of ego state theory with the Enneagram. Okay. So I'm about to say something and it's going to lock us in to a commitment. Okay. This is a thing that I do. I have offered the idea more than once I know where this is going. Yeah, of us doing a full series <laughs> on ego state and the Enneagram. And Kelly, since you asked, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to say, we're going to do it. <laughs> we have to. <laughs> we it's have the to. listeners. They, they're asking for it. That's so right. we have to. We have to. Uh, so the short answer is we rely on the Enneagram a lot. Think about it all the time. Personally, professionally, romantically, parentally. <laughs> friendship wise all of it mammalian yes <laughs> our lives are based on the enneagram basically um bridger's a two i'm a three no one is surprised <laughs> um so uh yeah 
Ego state with the Enneagram, I, I'm hoping that I'm going to interpret the heart of this question appropriately, and Kelly, please correct us if we don't get it quite right, and we will include any further questions that you have when we do that series. Um, but ego state theory with the Enneagram um, is a beautiful pairing, although I have a major caveat to that, which is when we're introducing a new concept to a client, we need to be really careful about overwhelming them with new theory and concepts. Yes. Here's and, one theory, and you also need to know and this it, one. Yes, yeah. And um, that uh, can be a lot for them to mm -hmm. integrate at one time. So my recommendation would be don't do it at the same time unless the client comes in with a lot of awareness and um, literacy in the Enneagram. Yes. If they come in and say, hi, nice to meet you, I'm a seven, and here's what that means, uh, well, yeah, go ahead then. <laughs> That's crazy you said a seven because I was literally thinking of a client that is a seven. Is this, I mean, we, yeah, we have a lot of communication. Yeah. <laughs> say uh, seven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if, if this is already in their wheelhouse, go ahead and integrate it, um, and particularly around the way that parts of them show up on different spots in their Enneagram expression can be really helpful. So as an example for me, I am highly aware of the emotional parts of myself that show up as my stress path to nine. So for those of you that are not versed in the Enneagram, three is the achiever, nine is the peacemaker. When a three gets stressed, I go into nine mode, which means I just sort of shut down. Um, I lose all oomph, which yeah. is notable. Yeah. For <laughs> That's what it looks like externally. Yes. Internally. Internally, full on panic and like all Locked of the energy down. is there and none of it can come out. It's not comfy. Um, so understanding that about, you know, your clients and about yourself means if you know what the stress path is and you can share with your clients, Hey, you probably have some emotional parts that express this way, because I know that let's say, um, you know, you're a five. And so when you get stressed, you're probably going to run over to seven and want to like distract and escape and maybe get a little high. <laughs> uh -huh, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, the, so do you have some emotional parts that, that mm -hmm. seem to show up that way? And their growth path is great for resourcing. Yes. So in that same example, for a five, let's find that eight challenger. Yes. Right? And and get some energy that. and some mobilization yeah. in there. Like how does that feel when you're in that space? Mm -hmm. What does your body feel like? Let's install that yes. version of you. Um, it's so beautiful. knowing those paths can help us on both ends. Um, and uh, yeah, so we would definitely use that language. But the caution there is don't try to teach them ego state and Enneagram at the same time because it is a lot. So do one and then the other. Or assume that there's perfect overlap because, because there is, not. is yes. not. For me, my eight um, as a two, my eight is one of my greatest resources. Mm -hmm. um, I very much identify it as an ANP. It is inside as my comfy friend. Um, yes. And I lived in it for much of uh, my yeah. early life. So yeah. that um, is an integrated part of you. Yes, it is yes. very much so. Mm -hmm. And I am able to, to use it as a resource as opposed to fear it as an intrusion, right? Um, which is what EPs typically are. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it overlaps very nicely and can be used to explore um, kind of like a map, but it is not a uh, like anatomy book. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, and we will, like I said, I am hoping that I'm going to convince the two of you to uh, do a whole series. Oh, I'm in. <laughs> okay, we I'm just have so to convince in. Jen. So everybody write in and hey, tell Jen. Jen specifically that you want <laughs> a series on the Enneagram. Yes. We won't do all nine types, so it won't be like a nine-part series. Um, we will probably cluster them into heart triad, head triad, gut triad, yes. and you know keep it a little bit shorter, but still give us plenty of time to get That's into the right. good stuff. We, yeah, and we have a lot coming out um, 
very soon. Twenty twenty one is already. I feel like it's over. Full. Yeah, I know. <laughs> even though it's only April. Well, that's because the whole calendar's planned. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but anyway, thank you guys so much for sending in questions. Such good questions. Um, we love hearing from mm-hmm. you, and we hope that um, this just gives more inspiration and curiosity to you guys about asking other questions yes. and getting more involved with BHC. Yeah. Get on Patreon. Yeah. Send Hang us out stuff. With us. Email us. Let's I want to talk with you. Yeah, I love that I like know these people that are sending us questions. That's like, pretty cool. You know, we get to hang out every once in a while and interact and be humans together rather than just voices. So, Yay. all right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your questions and happy spring to everybody. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.